Good morning, church. My name is Marcus Merrill. I'm one of the elders here at the church. So today you have me. Um, thank you. I, um, I'd like to open in prayer, um, prepare our hearts uh, for, for God and his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We pray for those that are not here today with us that wanted to be, but due to health or other circumstances are not able to. We pray for a speedy and quick recovery for them and their family. We ask that you quiet our minds, prepare our hearts, open our hearts for your word, so that you, Jesus, may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So six days ago, we had a beautiful celebration of life here at this church um, with the passing of our dear Karen Fallett. And it was such an overwhelming outpouring of love and support to the Fallett family on Sunday evening at the viewing. And then there was probably, I don't know, some estimates about 500 people came through and another 350 or so here at the church on Monday. It was just a testimony of who Karen was, um, what she meant to people, her family, and friends. Has anyone ever heard of Frank Jenner? Okay, good. So Frank Jenner lived in Sydney, Australia. And shortly after he received Christ into his life, sometime in the 1930s, um, he... He committed to God that he would speak to 10 people a day about Jesus Christ. So after his job was over around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he'd go to George, uh, George Street and in Sydney. And this was now late 30s into the 40s. And Sydney was a, a port where a lot of military Navy ships would, would dock. So he got to speak to a lot of servicemen. And he just approached them and asked them a simple question. If you were to die tonight, where would your soul go, heaven or hell? And that's all he'd ask. So he would do this and do this and do this every day. And some, some men would be receptive and some wouldn't. Some might even do the uh, confess and, and accept Jesus Christ, but then they'd be on their way. It was a very transient relationship. So there was a Reverend Dixon in England who heard about Frank Jenner and a couple of Navy men from the, uh, the Royal Navy told their story about this man who approached them, posed this question, and they both, due to that question, they accepted Christ and they, they, they turned their life to Christ. Well, Reverend Dixon was very impressed with this and he would talk about this man and, 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 and what he would do in, in Sydney, even though he, never, he didn't know Frank Jenner. He didn't even know the man's name at the time. So Reverend Dixon went to Australia on a preaching tour, and he started talking at different provinces uh, that he would go to, and he would usually end his message about this man asking this question. Every place he went to, there was someone who came up to Reverend Dixon and said, I met that man on George Street, 
and I turned my life to Christ because of him. So Reverend Dixon wanted to meet this man. He contacted a person who knew Frank Jenner, and they met. And Reverend Dixon uh, told Frank Jenner, I want to tell you the story. And he explained to, to, to Frank Jenner about these two men initially that accepted Christ because of what he said. And, 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 and Mr. Jenner dropped to his knees in tears and was so grateful to God because he said, I've been doing this for 16 years and I've never known one person to continue living for Christ because of what I've been doing. Well, Frank Jenner continued to do this for his lifetime. Of over 20 years of doing this, they estimate he probably spoke to about 100,000 people about Christ. Frank wasn't a preacher, but what he was and what he felt he was called was to sow. And his sowing was just approaching people and asking them about Jesus Christ and if they know him and where they're going to go. Frank had no idea how many people he had touched throughout the world because as Reverend Dixon continued this story and he would travel to India, he would travel to the United States, in every country he found someone who was touched by Frank Jenner. So that story came to mind as we went back to last week to see how many people Karen Fallett touched, right? As I prepared, what I was going to talk about today was quite a while ago. And I, I thought, this is the beginning of a new year. It would be really good to talk about, and we've done this before, um, but the foundation of the Christian faith. Frank Jenner built his foundation on Jesus Christ. Obviously, Karen Fallett did as well. You can see it by the fruit of what her life produced. The interesting thing, sometimes we don't always see the fruit of what we produce. We don't know, but God does, and that's what's most important. So in talking about foundation, I want to talk about a bridge in Michigan. It's a very famous bridge in Michigan. Does anyone know what bridge that might be? So walking, I thought people, oh, I did hear Mackinac. I thought it would be the, the, the Mackinac Bridge, uh, but yes, it's the Zewaki Bridge. So the Zewaki Bridge, if you're going up north on I-75, spans what's called the Saginaw River. And before the Zewaki Bridge was built, it was an old drawbridge system. If, you were, if, you're, if you're old enough to remember, going up north, that there was a freighter coming through the Saginaw River, and the drawbridge had to open, you sat for a long time, and it was a long backup, north and southbound. So the state wanted to correct this, and in 1978, they began bids for construction of what's now the Zawaki Bridge. There was two bids. One was steel, and one was concrete. The steel uh, bid came in, oh gosh, it was uh, 70, I'm sorry, 86 million, and the concrete was 76 million. So the state said, we'll go with concrete, it's cheaper right? So, so the Zawaki Bridge just recently turned 30 years old. And some pretty interesting um, facts about it. It's 125 feet tall, it's the tallest point. 
It's 1.5 miles long. It's 23 acres of decking. Um, you can actually, it's hollow in the middle. You can drive through the middle in a little what, golf cart thing. That's how they do maintenance. And when they started construction in 1979, things were going well until August of 1982. And what happened in August of 1982, there was a mispositioned weight that crushed a temporary block on an expansion joint. And when that happened, a 300-foot section the size of a football field sank five feet. The other section rose three feet. So you have this eight-foot gap that was devastating to the construction. When that happened, um, obviously construction halted on the bridge. And to make matters worse, the pier and the foundation crushed five feet. So what they had to do was build another like cylinder pier around the broken pier, and they drove all the way down into bedrock so they can then continue to, to build the bridge. That took two years and six million dollars to fix just that foundational pier. So by 1988, nine years after construction, the bridge was fully opened on north and southbound side. And the project was $50 million over budget. It cost $127 million. Most expensive bridge built in Michigan. Mackinac was 99. Now, inflation, that might be different, obviously, but you get my point. It was a very expensive uh, bridge. It was supposed to last 100 years, so we'll see. I won't see, but um, that's what they say. Throughout the Bible, for the life of the believer, there was a lot of direction to us about constructing, building up our faith, right? Jude 1.20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Luke 6, 47 and 48, For everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the, the stream broke against that house and could, not be, and could not shake it because it had been well built. So we get this picture of how important a foundation is for a Christian and in their life. How important a foundation is to a structure. When a structure is being built, the foundation has to be approved before they can even put the structure up, whether it's a house, a pole barn, or any structure. That's how important a foundation is. Because if it is not a proper foundation, the whole building is compromised. Foundations are, there's a, there's a fixed relationship between foundations. A small foundation, small structure. Large foundation, large structure. If buildings are built on foundations that are not in line to support it, the walls will sag, it will settle incorrectly. And it come, the, the whole structure will, be, will come out of what's called true. It won't be true anymore. 
Conversely, this happens in the Christian life. Spiritual lives of many Christians may set out with great intentions of raising a true and godly Christian life and a walk. But before long, this fine structure begins to sag, begins to crumble, show cracks. It may even collapse, leaving behind a ruined heap of promises, vows, and good intentions. The reason for that is that foundation was not properly laid and was unable to support what was being built. This begs the question, what then is God's appointed foundation for the Christian life? Paul addressed this in 1 Corinthians 3.11 when he said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Peter also confirmed this in 1 Peter 2.6. He said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. King James Version says, chief cornerstone. The scripture that Peter here is referring to, we can find in Isaiah 28.16, when it is, Isaiah says, in Isaiah it says, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a secure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Another word would be in panic or fear. So as we often see throughout the Bible, there is harmony between the New and Old Testament here in this vital fact of the foundation. The obvious answer to this question, though, of who or what is the true foundation of the Christian life is obviously Jesus Christ himself. It's a foundation that no other can lay. But I'd like to kind of focus today on the account between Jesus and Peter. And in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He, Jesus, said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are some people who suggest that Jesus is making Peter the rock, in the, in the sense of the foundation of the Christian, uh, Christian faith in the church, rather than Jesus Christ himself. In fact, the Roman Catholics uh, interpret this rock in reference to Peter as the first pope. In the beginning of the, the apostolic succession, but I would like to examine the words Jesus is saying here very carefully to get the, very, the true meaning. There, there seems to be somewhat of a play of words here when we look at the Greek, the original Greek. 
because Peter is Petros. And the word rock is Petra. Petros and Petra. So there are two names which sound very familiar, but are not to be considered the same thing. Petros, or Peter, means a small stone or a pebble, something that can roll. Petra means a a large, unmovable rock or boulder. The idea of the church being built on a pebble is ridiculous. And I don't believe that's what could be interpreted by Jesus' words at all. If we look at some modern-day language that might help us with this, probably the closest that we can come to is the French language. And if we read what the, in the French what that scripture is, the French form of Peter in French is, anyone know? Pierre. Pierre. Pierre also means stone or pebble. The, word, the French word for rock is rocher. Not pharaoh rocher, the chocolate, but rocher. Rocher is a boulder or a rock. So let's look at the French version. Jesus will be saying, you are Pierre, you are a stone. And upon this rock, rocher, I will build my church. Jesus is not identifying Peter with the boulder or rock, an immovable rock. Rather, he is showing the noticeable differences between he himself, Jesus, and who Peter is. Jesus is pointing out how insignificant a little stone is compared to a great rock on which the church is built. Common sense and most importantly, Scripture alike confirm this fact. First, think about this. If the church was built on a mere man, just think of how unstable the structure would be. It just could not and would not last on a, on a man. And if we look a little bit further into this chapter in Matthew, a few short verses down, there's an interaction of Jesus and Peter when Jesus was foretelling his death and resurrection. Peter took Jesus aside and said to Jesus, this shall never happen to you. What was Jesus' response to them? It was pretty pretty astounding statement that Jesus said. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Romans 8, 6 says that if you put your minds on the thing of things of flesh, that equals death. But if you put your mind on the things of the Spirit, it is life and peace. Jesus is referring that. Jesus is directly confronting Peter. He's charging him that he is being influenced by his thinking, by the opinions of men, and even to the promptings of Satan himself. So how could such a man be the foundation of the entire Christian church in Peter? Plus, we all know that further in the Gospels, Peter, rather than confess Christ before a serving maid, he denied him three times. Even Paul had a run-in with Peter in Galatians 2, 11, 14, we see uh, Paul oppose Peter 
because Peter was being influenced by fear of his countrymen to, the, to comprise at one point concerning the truth of the gospel. Now, it sounds like I might be beating up on Peter here a lot. Maybe I'm just a little, but it's not to destroy Peter. I'm showing you this because Peter, Peter was a lovable man. He had a lot of passion, but he was very quick. He was kind of quick-tempered, if you will. Just ask the Roman soldier who lost his ear. But I'm saying this because Peter was a man. A man with inherent weakness. A man with sin. A man with failings. Just like the rest of us. Frank Jenner, going back to Australia, he knew that as well about himself. He said he knew he was a weak man. That's why he said before he approached every person and had a little reminder in his, his, his shirt pocket, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. Even David in the Old Testament knew this. In Psalm 18.2, he wrote that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In Psalm 62, 2 and 6, he wrote that God only is my rock in my salvation. In verse 7, he says, On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. It does not get much plainer than this. Even Peter himself acknowledged that Jesus is the rock. We even have a hymn about it, Rock of All Ages, right? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. We see in Acts 4.12, when he was speaking to the people of Israel concerning Jesus Christ of Nazareth, when he said, and I love this verse, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ himself alone is the rock, the true rock, the only rock, the rock of ages, of whom is the only way for salvation. Anyone who builds upon this foundation can say like David, he is my rock and my salvation, he is my defense, I shall not be moved. It reminds me of Karen's life. You can see how that she lived that. Her foundation was, was deep in Jesus Christ. So this is all great and wonderful, right? Sounds like wonderful stuff, but this leads to the, que- the next question. How does one begin to build upon this rock? Who is Jesus Christ? This can be done in four stages. But before I get into the four stages, I just want to go back to what Peter and Jesus, when they were standing face to face in an interaction. And Peter said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have seen this rock, we, we know the rock is Jesus Christ, but it's not Christ in isolation or an ad, abstract, like an idea, but rather in events. So the four stages. The first stage is direct contact. There was a direct personal confrontation or meeting between Peter and Jesus himself. They stood face to face. There was no mediator. 
between them. No other human, no entity played a part in their experience. It was personal. Second is direct spiritual revelation. This was granted to Peter because Jesus even said it. He said, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Natural reasoning or intellect played no part in this. Peter's understanding and knowledge of who Jesus was came directly from the Father through the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. Third, personal acknowledgement. Peter's acknowledgement of the truth, which was revealed to him by God. And fourth, open and public confession. He, Peter, confessed what was true, which he acknowledged openly. So with these stages, these four stages, we can see what it means to build on this rock of Jesus. It is not based on an idea or our intellect or some other grand theory. It is these four stages. First, a direct personal meeting with Christ. Second, a direct spiritual revelation of Christ. Third, a personal acknowledgement of Christ. And fourth, an open personal confession of Christ. So it is thus Christ experienced, thus revealed, thus acknowledged, and confessed. It is this way that Christ becomes, for each individual believer, the rock upon which their faith is built. Now, can such an experience be possible today, the here and now? I believe so, yes, obviously. But for us to be able to experience Christ, we must, the same way Peter did, we must uh, answer yes to the two following questions. First, Christ was revealed was not revealed, I'm sorry, in his human nature. Peter already knew Jesus of Nazareth as the son of a carpenter. The Jesus that was revealed to Peter was the divine, the eternal, the unchanging son of God. This is the same Christ who lives in heaven at Father's right hand today. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and in the future. He does not change. So as he was revealed to Peter way back then, 2,000 years ago, he can still be revealed today to those who sincerely seek him. Secondly, the revelation did not come by flesh and blood. It did not come by a physical or sensory means. It was a spiritual revelation. The work of God's own Holy Spirit was at work. The same spirit who gave this revelation Peter is now at work throughout the world revealing Christ to this day. Jesus promised this fact to his disciples in John 16, 13, and 14 when he said, The spirit of truth comes. He will guide you in all the truth. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Since this revelation is eternal spiritual an internal eternal spiritual realm it is not limited to material factors or time or language or customs or circumstances the individual and personal experience of Jesus Christ revealed by the holy spirit 
remains the one true unchanging rock, one unmovable foundation upon which all true Christian faith must be built and based. When we look at personal experiences of spiritual revelation, I've got permission to say this, so, uh, so she won't uh, be upset with me, but my wife Julie, many, many years ago, before uh, we even met, she was living in a different state, but going for a, through a very difficult, very hard, depressing time in her life, which I'm sure a lot of us can relate with. And she was really seeking God. And she was asleep, and God gave her a, a revelation in, her, in a dream. And in her dream, she was sinking in a, a bog or a, a swamp or a mire. And all of a sudden, a large hand lifted her out and placed her on the firm ground. She woke up. Next to her bed was the Bible. She opened it up. She opened it up immediately to Psalm 40, verse 2, which says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That meant, meant so much to Julie that God revealed to her in a real personal way, in an experience, I am with you. I have you. Do not be afraid. And that meant so much to her, as it would to anyone in that time. Therefore, creeds, opinions, Churches, denominations, all these things may change. But the one true rock of God's salvation by personal faith in Christ remains eternal and unchanging. Upon which a person may build their faith now and for eternity with a security and confidence which nothing can ever overthrow it. Before we come to a close, I just want to go through a few more verses uh, in the Bible, look at what some of the early Christians and their confidence concerning their faith built on Jesus says. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent so this is showing them that they know that God revealed personally in Jesus Christ and to know that Jesus is not a great historical figure, but a direct and personal person that they can have an interaction with. It's, not, it's the here and now. That's what's so amazing about this. Christ lives so we can still have that personal relationship. 1 John 5.13 Another one of my favorites. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The early Christians not only believed, but they also knew. Their faith produced a definite knowledge of that which they believed. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
He is, in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. You can see the amazing and great confidence in the writings. Their basis is knowledge of a person. It's a real event. And that person is Jesus Christ. In the last verse, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day. Here we see Paul saying this, and you notice he did not say that I have believed. He said, I know whom I have believed. His faith is not based on a creed or a church, but on one person whom he knew by direct acquaintance in Jesus Christ. Due to this, Paul had a peaceful confidence concerning the well-being of his soul, which nothing could overthrow it. The only way a true Christian foundation can be built is on the one sure foundation of a direct personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for this church family and my prayer for this church and believers sitting here today is that we may know with confidence and belief that our faith is built on one sure foundation and a direct personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray you reveal in a real way this knowledge and relationship that can only come from you. May you grant us peace and mercy and a steadfast faith as we look to the hope and return of you or when you call us home. We pray this to you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who reigns now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.